I'm Austin, and this is Validated. Today I'm speaking with Thomas Bonner, CEO and co-founder of Credix, a decentralized private credit marketplace built on Solana. Credix connects global institutional investors with credit opportunities in Latin America and other emerging markets. One of the fundamental questions of this conversation is this. Do we really need a blockchain to build the future of global credit markets? Is there really a net new value that this technology brings to private credit? According to Thomas, the answer is yes, and that value is not theoretical or coming soon, but something that immediately improves upon existing inefficiencies in credit markets. As an asset class, private credit in emerging markets like Latin America generally lacks modern digital infrastructure. It's a world of emails, Excel files, faxes, and other manual drudgery. With credits, investors and borrowers are able to leverage smart contracts for things like instant settlement and frictionless cross-border payments, all while operating within legally compliant frameworks. Thomas and I also reflect on the philosophical evolution of DeFi 2.0 and its willingness to incorporate off-chain components. Is Credics truly a DeFi protocol, or is it a fintech company that heavily incorporates blockchain into its operation? Does that distinction even matter? Would Satoshi view Credics, a project based in financial inclusion, as an extension of crypto's foundational ideas or a violation of them? If you have ideas for the show, send us an email at validated at solana.org. Let's dive in. Thomas, welcome to Validated. Yeah, thank you. Uh, really excited to be here. Really excited to, to talk uh, about the ecosystem. Yeah, this is a topic that we've kind of been digging into more over the last year or so of the show, which is like this new generation of DeFi, right? We yes. had sort of the the rise of initially builder DeFi on Ethereum in that sort of 2019, early 2020 timeline. And we saw all this really explode in the summer of 2020 and 2021. And then there was a really big retraction in the DeFi market. And this is sort of typical of every bear market. But one of the things I've been really impressed in the Solana ecosystem by is how much DeFi innovation has sort of continued when really no one was paying attention to DeFi. Um, I feel like Credix sort of fits into this, this story as well, where this was something that you guys started talking a bit in 2021 about sort of what you were building, but it felt like most of those things were sort of still coming. And, you know, here we are now halfway through 2023, and we're in a really different position in Solana DeFi in general and with you guys. So I want to start out, could you give us kind of an overview of, of sort of what Credix is and what the impetus for the protocol was? Oh, definitely. So if you look at the core, Credix is trying to build a digital infrastructure for the private credit market. And we specifically, we have a focus on Latin America. So often in the world of DeFi, in the world of blockchain, we will be referred to as a real-world asset RWA protocol, been doing the tokenization of, of debt and of credit. Now, me personally, I've been working professionally into the blockchain space for like almost 10 years now. And, and I remember eight, nine years ago, there was this big promise of tokenization. And I think it really never took off because what we try to do is like, we try to take the status quo of the financial services, put it on the blockchain, and we expected the blockchain to solve all our problems, like cut out all the middlemen, like everybody's going to like make a lot of money, this is going to grow, the financial services system is going to become super efficient. And very quickly, I think everybody realized it was a lot harder than that. And I think that then triggered like the, the net new innovation, which brought like the DeFi summer of 2021. 
Back then, I, I was still working in enterprise blockchain, and it was really that DeFi summer, like truly disrupting, rethinking how financial services work, bringing in uh, retail, creating true efficiencies that triggered us. Um, and, and when I'm speaking us, I'm saying me and my two co-founders to think about like, hey, how can we now bridge this this world of traditional tokenization and the net new innovation that is happening in, in DeFi? And so that became the initial promise for, for credits. And here we are now, about two years later, we are putting asset-backed securities on the blockchain, backed by a DeFi model. So uh, pretty exciting. So there's a lot of folks who have tried to do some version of this over the history of DeFi. And honestly, this isn't entirely new to DeFi. We saw a lot of this type of work in sort of the, the fintech boom of like 2010s. And the problem that a lot of folks ran into, especially back then, was that the taking of these types of assets, the basically bridging from what can be described as a programmatic asset model, which is something like Robinhood's very programmatic, right? You tie into the stock brokerages and you have an instant access and it's it's basically just API calls at the end of the day. It's a gross oversimplification of that market, but at the end of the day, it's either API calls or in the case of like an AMM on chain or something like um, OpenBook, Everything is on-chain, and you don't have to worry about this messy world of humans. Credit markets in Latin America is exclusively the messy world of humans, and you're combining that with something like a permissionless blockchain. So the, the problem with most of these things historically has been that interface point, where you either run into Oracle problems or you just run into logistics problems where it takes a lot of humans to process a lot of off-chain paperwork. So how have you guys thought through that problem and sort of what using this uh, type of technology on blockchain actually brings you versus going like the the masterworks route or something like that? I think we, we learned the hard way, right? So I think we were very opportunistic when we got started, like, hey, like there is this like high interest rate environment in Latin America, low interest rate environment in the United States. We're going to like bring them together on blockchain. Everybody's going to be happy and everybody's going to be investing in these kind of credits, right? But indeed, like you say, very quickly you realize that the the biggest issue and the, the biggest difficulty is not creating the smart contracts and, and putting the business logic on chain and automating a big part of the transaction, but it's really indeed bringing that bridge between the digital world and the off-chain world. And very quickly, when you talk about those kind of things, you come in like regulatory frameworks and risk management frameworks. And so from the beginning, that is something that we said with Credics, like, look, we can not only build the protocol as a standalone, we will have to set up legal infrastructure and we will have to go through the pain of integrating that legal infrastructure with the on-chain world to really make this institutional great. Because if you say to, to any investor, retail or institutional, I'm going to give you a 10x better experience from like buying and selling these kind of credits. But in the end, you don't really have a recourse when things go into default or there has not been really any risk management underwriting being done. That technical user experience isn't worth a lot. And so it's really by integrating good best practices from the traditional finance world for risk management and legal frameworks and bringing that into this new digital era of blockchain. So I hear that. Like, that is something I think is like a really, really true and strong point here. Like, I know people who work in like the traditional bonds market and work yeah. for some like classic CFI, uh, you know, 
debt consolidation type groups. And one of the things that like they will say is that they don't necessarily understand why this sort of thing is better on blockchain. And to be fair, I'm not a believer that things have to be better on blockchain at the start for them to sometimes be better in the future. This is like your classic like David Letterman interview with Bill Gates where he's like, well, I can listen to the radio and I can get the New York Times. Why is it better coming through my computer in my living room? Yeah. But like walk us through a little bit about that like long term future. Where do you see something like this eventually hitting escape velocity, for lack of a better term, where it's not only competing with these traditional centralized credit, you know, and debt markets, but it's actually providing either greater efficiency or something that feels like net new. Perfect. So I think for us, we always think about this in three different distinct phases. First of all, I think it's very important that we realize the asset clause that that we are tokenizing private credit and then definitely into the Latin American market, emerging markets. There is no infrastructure here today. We're really talking about people using emails, faxing, printing documents, running with the document to register it with the right authorities. Um, and so already digitizing the data, bringing the data in a certain standard on a digital infrastructure, if it is AWS or a blockchain or whatever, already provides a tremendous amount of value. Now, what we then believe is the second big phase of bringing value is integrating your settlement layer and your data processing layer. And this provides tremendous efficiency. The amount of reconciliation, data breaks, errors that happen because of manual intervention, because data is processed in a silo and settlement happens on different kind of infrastructure is tremendous in this financial services industry, definitely with private credit. And I think one of the, the most beautiful examples that we always take is today, if you would do like a cross-border private credit transaction, every month to do a simple interest repayment, it would take you about a week, at least, with like six or seven parties. Because everybody is running their Excel, they are calculating what should be paid in interest to which investor, how the distribution should look like. They're all sending it over email to each other, comparing. At the end, they agree. Then they need to send the payment instructions. And then they go check like, hey, did the payment actually meet what we had in our Excel? And then like, oh, there is $10 missing there, $5 missing there. And so again, they have to go through the whole process. Once you have in your smart contract, your business logic agreed once on how you're going to be processing data and you run a stable coin or, or really any asset through that smart contract, there is no dispute possible. In real time, your settlement and your data processing happens. And that creates a tremendous amount of efficiency. And then lastly is the third phase. That's where, where, where I'm personally the most excited about. And that is like truly net new innovation. I'm thinking here about building fully decentralized stable coins that are partially backed by real world assets, uh, something we're already doing uh, with another protocol on uh, Solana UXD. Uh, we have a direct integration, fully automated, 
fully smart contract-driven decentralized asset liability module. But we can start thinking about secondary markets, new kind of insurance products, access for retail investors. But it starts with that digitalization of the data. Then it moves into the integration with the settlements. And then we can start thinking about the net new innovation. Yeah, it's interesting that point too that you sort of brought up there around like, oh, we can build a smart contract and we we flow data through this smart contract, no matter what the asset type is, it'll distribute an output in this in this specific way. It's kind of interesting because I think a lot of people assume there is just a business logic services platform that they can build those sort of financial contracts through and that that'll just like, oh, the existing financial industry must have smart contracts for normal money contracts. And it's interesting that like one of the major unlocks in blockchain is that we've simply built a programming language that allows this stuff to be done in a way where every step of the process can be verified. And one would assume that's part of the existing financial stack. Definitely. And 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 we definitely see that a lot when we interact with like crypto native investors or people who have been crypto native and have been using uh, more traditional DeFi products. For For them, it's normal, like, hey, liquidation happens automatically. Everything is transparent. You can see everything on chain. When you talk about data processing and settlement, it's it's almost the same for them in the conversation. But when you speak with people in traditional finance, they, they speak about a swift transaction that might take one day, but it also might take five days. And if you really have a bad day, it might even still take 10 sometimes. And so I think it is the the the, the lack of truly digital infrastructure and the creation of silos that we have in in traditional financial worlds that put us at such an advantage here by having those indeed like native financial contracts yeah on the infrastructure i think that's really interesting that like that is actually something that has not really been done at this no. point cuz we joke that like every startup is just a google sheet with a fancy front end but it's interesting how much that is still true of the traditional financial world. Yes, exactly. And 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 it is very true. And and there is so much still to be done, right? Like if we look today, for example, at credits, what, what we have been really strong at and really been focused at is solving the problems for the investors. So we have built an amazing set of smart contracts to be able to very quickly, very efficiently process massive amounts of data, do complex securitization transactions, provide everything in real time for our investors, do a cross-border settlement into Brazil. But the moment the money arrives in Brazil, there still is like traditional payment rail we have to go through. There still is like an Excel to do the portfolio management. And slowly but steadily, we're digitizing all of those things, tokenizing the underlying assets, creating smart contracts to manage the portfolio covenants and eligibility criteria. And we see that this creates excitement with the borrowers and the partners that we work with, because this is a world that they could have never imagined with the traditional tools that they have available. So I want to talk a little bit about those partners that you work with in Latin America. So when they come to you and say, hey, I'm, I'm doing a project or I need a loan or I have you know, a credit facility and we need to raise debt to finance whatever operations they're doing, do they know that at the end of the day this is settling on blockchain? Or like, at, at what point in the process does someone have to learn what credits is other than a place I can go and get money? Yeah. Today, nobody really has to anymore. Yeah. So um, we have fully abstracted away 
the blockchain part and the blockchain interactions. So on-ramping and off-ramping can happen with like direct fiat interactions. We have APIs and user interfaces to get access to the data, interact with the platform. Now, a lot of the partners that we work with uh, in Latin America are startups or scale-ups themselves. So they're often very curious to learn more. And they say like, hey, we want to have a wallet. We want to interact with the blockchain. We believe this is the future. Um, so right. we, they we ask often... if they can get a slightly better rate if they do it all exactly, in blockchain. Exactly. Yeah. Of course. Of course. <laughs> so look, we're, 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 we're having a lot of fun going with them to the education. And you see them thinking, right? They, they have painful processes internally. So they start to think like, hey, why don't I put like a bigger part of my business here? Because in the end, like I also have financial contracts. I also have reconciliations today. So why don't I like integrate even deeper with credits and start thinking about using stable coins and smart contracts? But from an investor perspective, for example, today we have a, a few billion dollar asset managers that interact with our platform. They send us US dollars, everything goes automated, and they see how their portfolio behaves in real time, which comes directly from the blockchain, but they wouldn't even know. So on the, on for lack of a better term, the liquidity providing side, um, from those who are actually saying like, hey, I want somewhere to park my cash, I want to earn returns, what does that process look like now? Is that is that a very traditional sales market nowadays where you are calling up fund managers and you're talking to them about these type of opportunities or is that more self-service like you see in traditional crypto liquidity? No, so today that still has a, a pretty bespoke approach. So we mostly have um, big partnerships, long-term relationships with larger institutional asset managers, more traditional finance players and some smaller boutique credit funds. So today um, we we have a team, including myself, like calling them, doing the education, showing them what what brings the value. We're starting to to close bigger multi-million dollar, three to four year kind of deals with them, which we believe is important to to anchor the platform, to create a certain trust in our underwriting and risk management capabilities before we open this up in a more democratized marketplace model where also like smaller investors and smaller ticket sizes uh, can be accepted. Yeah. So when you're talking with them, what are those conversations like? I, I think a lot of folks at this stage are a little unsure of crypto in general, but how are they looking at something like the smart contract risk that might be associated with something in blockchain compared to the traditional risks they sort of see in going with a different company for these sort of opportunities? Yeah. It's, it's like we, we, we had our board meeting about a month ago and uh, I think there one of our board members referred to it like, you, you guys made your lives like very difficult, right? Like you, you first have to come in and you have to sell them credit in Latin America. Then you have to sell them the Solana blockchain and smart contracts. And then you have to sell them the usage of stable coins in the back. Yeah. So we're, we're selling three products really, right? But it's, but it's because we believe in the, in, the, in the massive opportunity in the long term, of course. Now, how do these conversations go? It, it always starts with like, what is the true credit product that we're bringing to them? What is the real world asset, the real world value that we're bringing to them that they could not really get before? And so the issue with investing in emerging countries is that there is no easy way to do it and there is no transparent way to do it. And there is a lot of fraud and uncertainty. Sounds like crypto. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
So it's, it starts with not talking with them about blockchain, but about the value that it brings. Hey, you will have like real-time monitoring of your portfolio. You will have like instant settlement. We can provide certain liquidity tricks. We can pool certain in investments to give you diversification. And that really starts triggering the interest. Then, of course, we go a bit deeper into the innovation part of things. And I think a year ago, um, or, or maybe already a bit longer, funds were knocking on our door to learn more about real-world assets and tokenization and blockchain. Today, it's a bit less, but we feel that with the real big asset managers, nothing really hasn't changed. And they're definitely less public about it, but they have teams, they are invested, they have a thesis, and they understand that if they want to scale their assets under management without the need to hire hundreds or thousands of people, they will have to start using better technology for that. Yeah, it is interesting that in a world of historically low interest rates, I hadn't really thought of this before until you kind of brought this up, but like, and you didn't quite say this, but in a world of low interest rates, you can deal with a lot more operational overhead than you can in a world of high interest rates. Yeah. And that there's a bit of a forcing function potentially on the adoption of blockchain technology just based on the fact that you can take your headcount and knock it down by 80% potentially and get the same efficiencies if you adopt these kind of underlying technologies. Exactly. It's interesting. Exactly. Yeah, I think it's very interesting. And I think it's we're a bit in this weird situation in the market where still some of the, the biggest financial institutions, they keep growing their assets under management. They keep seeing massive inflows of capital. At the same time, they're a lot more risk averse of, of where to put it. Yeah. But they also, they cannot increase their headcounts to, to, to allocate it efficiently. And so they're really in this big need of like partnering up with technology native origination and asset management platforms to be able to, to scale their business without decreasing their margins and their profitability. Interesting. So we talked a little bit about the differences in like the investor side and then also on sort of the client side. Over the long term, where do you see this market evolving? Do you think that like, because right now you're sort of talking about a, a private system on the investor side and a private system on the borrower side. Yeah. Um, how, kind of my favorite question to ask anyone in this sort of new generation of DeFi, how permissionless do you think these systems can get into the future realistically? And how much of this is going to be someone always has to review a credit application? Yeah, it's a good question. I think... Personally, like, look, the, the, the whole team almost that works at Credix, we, we come from a background of, of having been crypto degens pretty early in the industry. We, we like the idea of decentralization and, and permissionless. I think the moment you start talking about credit and, and risk, you start to have a bit of a different view on that, right? Like, you always start to have a, a worst case scenario approach. What if things go wrong? And today, that means that, like, how do you fit in with the current regulatory and legal frameworks? And so I think that will always remain at the core. Now, I think the protocols itself that we are building and the the, the marketplaces that we're building should become as open and permissionless as possible, which means that within those marketplaces, there can be environments that are like only allowed for certain borrowers or investors, 
but other people can build on top of it. Other borrowers can like open their own pools. Um, I think we can set up best practices of like, hey, how do you link the legal contract with the on-chain contract? But for that, a lot of work needs to be done. We need to work very closely with the regulator to move that forward. And as you know, in the US currently, that's not the easiest. In Brazil, where we're very active, this is going super smooth. Um, like we have weekly workshops with the central bank. Um, we're creating a tokenization group with them. They are starting their own central bank digital currency, which they will make interoperable with DeFi. So they say like, hey, we're just one example of a stablecoin. Everybody can have their own stablecoin. It needs to be permissionless. It needs to be interoperable. And I think that's the way that we think about it as well. Like we're putting assets on the credits protocol today. We're trying to build trust and best practices. But in the long term, this should be an open permissionless platform where anybody can like build on top. Yeah, that, I think that's fascinating that like so Brazil like Brazil famously their CBDC project is pretty far along they had a pretty interesting process to go ahead and select that um I think they had Solana in the running for a little bit too in terms of the technology they want to use but I want to talk a little bit about because Brazil is a very strange economy yes uh in some ways it's very on the administrative side tech forward on the actual economy side it's not as far along as I think most people would assume it is for an economy the size of Brazil. It's also got quite protectionist policies around certain parts of its economy. Like famously, it's very expensive to import computers or electronics of any sorts into into Brazil. So what made this be a market that you guys thought was a really good one to go after first? It's. I think it's exactly those things. I think it is the... The, the friction that it creates between like locally being a huge market, 200 million people, GDP is growing year over year. They have a pretty strong debt capital markets regulation. There are only a few banks that are really active who have some of the highest return on equity in the world. Still, a lot of people are unbanked. If you look at like invoice receivable financing, it is like a $2 trillion annual market. So there is a huge opportunity. But then at the same time, indeed, like the barrier to entry is super high. It's difficult to bring in foreign currency. It's difficult to do anything if you don't speak the Portuguese language. The volatility is is insane. Like five years you're you're working with Bolsonaro and now you have like an earlier convicted president who's gonna do who knows who knows what. And so I think it is that opportunity with a high barrier to entry that felt us like, hey, if if we can do it here, we can do it anywhere, right? And we can solve for it. And there is a truly big need to bring in more capital in this market and have an impact. And once we get this right in Brazil, it becomes almost a copy-paste model into easier markets like Mexico, like Colombia, and any other uh, emerging markets. And we believe there is a big opportunity to, to, to use blockchain and open kind of systems in local markets like the US. But there you're starting to play very quickly a pure margin play. Like you're, you're yeah. trying to save like 10 to 20 basis points. I think here we have a bit of like a more blank sheet page opportunity to truly rethink the way that these debt capital markets work and like 
we're, we're, we're talking about like sometimes very bad local service providers who charge like 500, 600 basis points for managing an Excel. And when you see that, you feel there is yeah. an opportunity. Well, this is where I think this is really like, I, I want to stay on this a little longer. I think this is fascinating because if you look at Brazil, it makes the U.S. look stable. Yeah. And I don't want to get into uh, Brazilian politics because there's, there's, there's a whole different podcast on that. But, uh, you know, I think one of the assumptions that a lot of folks in the United States make is they look at developing markets and they look at somewhere like Turkey and look at somewhere like Brazil and they say, this is just inherently four times riskier than we would like the market to be. Before you get into the normal issues with, uh, you know, credit facilities and debt facilities and debt financing and factoring and all that sort of work. Yep. Like the base level risk profile in this in this region seems higher than we're necessarily comfortable with. So how how did both you and then the investors who were investing in you sort of get comfortable with the idea that like, you know, as you said, there's a ton of education that's to go into like, first off, Latin America is not the top tier market that a lot of people look for and they're looking for these sorts yeah. of things. The The ideal company to lend to is like uh, the city of New York or like Apple or one of the, you know, like a very traditional stable enterprise. Uh, additionally, we're talking about blockchain, whole other piece. Yeah. Additionally, we're talking about, you know, a politically tumultuous country. I'm really curious, like what you guys are doing right that others are not doing that's making this market attractive to these kind of very traditional asset managers you're talking to. Yeah. I think it is really that like that that risk reward opportunity and a lot of the 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 risks that people see can be solved by certain mitigants. And like for that like you need to put in the work, you need to work with local people and you need to be open-minded. But once you get there, the opportunity becomes so big to become a leading market player and lead the way. And I think that is the opportunity that a lot of people like. And for example, if we if we look at first the, the credit itself, right? Like there is a big access premium. There just is a, a lack of local capital. Like only 20% of the, the, the SMEs and the corporates can get access to financing there today. It's not because like 80% of them are inherently all super risky. So they are paying like a very expensive price, not necessarily as a risk premium, but really an access to capital premium. Interesting. And a lot of big asset managers realize that. But then they say like, look, the hassle of like finding a local service provider, having to fly our team down there, we can only do like ticket sizes for like 200 or 300 million. Right. And they do that. Like Goldman is active, GP Morgan is active. They all do the big ticket sizes. But it's when you can bring in like that kind of trust by using technology, local teams, standardization, work with the local regulators, that it becomes a true opportunity. And I think the last two years, we, we have really with critics gone through the, the pains of all of that. And we're now at this point where we have like a good relationship, a very strong local team, very small. They use technology for almost everything. And then a digital infrastructure. And and that provides significant trust to the investors. Yeah. So I want to get into some of the work you guys are doing elsewhere in Latin America. But kind of b before that, how much do you guys consider yourselves a DeFi company versus how much do you consider yourselves a fintech company that's heavily leveraging blockchain? 
Is there a difference there? Like, because like, I think you look at something like Uniswap and everyone's like, okay, pure DeFi or Curve, right? There, there's there's nothing, nothing meaningful happens off chain besides marketing, some lawyers doing their lawyer work and, and software engineering. And everything else is like on chain is what matters. And, you know, Credix is one of the examples, but there, there's a bunch more on Solana, this sort of next gen DeFi that feels like it's very much melding that transition between like what a fintech company would be doing or a traditional financial services company and DeFi. So where do you sort of draw that line in your mind? Like how much of this is just sort of this is a new protocol versus like this is really the way DeFi 2.0 is going to be built? I think it depends a bit on who I'm pitching this to. Um, but uh, no, joke, jokes aside, um, I think we definitely see ourselves as like a next generation fintech company that is building on blockchain rails on DeFi rails, where I see I see a future for for credits that like at a certain point in time those two might split. We might have like our traditional off chain fintech company doing loan originations, and we might have a protocol that lives there where other fintechs or or people can build on top of. Um, but I think also like as DeFi gets integrated more and more in our day-to-day lives and people interact through it through centralized and traditional providers like Robinhood and PayPal, I think at a certain point in time, people are not going to care anymore. Is it like DeFi 1.0, 2.0? How decentralized is it? It's really like, does it bring the value that I expect this financial product to bring for me? Can I do self-custody when I want to? Can yeah. I interact directly with the stable coins? Can I trust the data that I'm seeing here? And I think we, we will see that emerge more and more. Yeah, I guess the follow-up to that is from a philosophical standpoint. How much does philosophical ideals drive what you're doing? And that can be that sort of sounds like a leading question where it's like, are you a ruthless capitalist or are you here for the tech? Right. And that's not sort of like yeah. framing, but there is this sort of process that I think crypto is going through is as it matures, a lot of these original principles, they're getting in the way of building real businesses. And how do you grapple with that both personally and sort of professionally as someone who's who's working in this space? But like the idea of like not my key is not my crypto it applies less to this new gen of DeFi than it did to Bitcoin. Definitely, definitely. I think a few interesting things there. So I think if I look back at at my personal career, like five, six years ago when I was like building enterprise blockchain systems for like large stock exchanges and like I was using the tech to like save them a few cents here and there and and make them millions of, of dollars, it didn't really feel the right way to be using the technology, right? I think today on the other side, like when I look back, what, what got me into crypto and what, what I got really inspired about with Bitcoin is like for the first time ever, we're having a global financial system that doesn't care who you are or where you are, but you can interact with it. So capital can move globally in the most efficient instant way and everybody can access it. And if I then look at the core of what we're doing at Credix, it's like we're bringing capital into these markets that really need the capital. And we're doing that by trying having a positive impact with a very strong ESG financial inclusion kind of angle. And then if I look back at it, I, I think like 
Satoshi should be proud, right? How this technology is being <laughs> used like today. Like we're, we're we're changing people's lives for the for the better. Like we 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 can potentially over time like truly overhaul these local banks that are making 20% return on equity, which is because you're misusing the way that you give credit to people. Um, and so by building a more open, fair, global kind of system, um, I think that is the way we really think about, like, it's important to use the technology. Um, but I think definitely there is an, another side to it. Like, we care indeed less about necessarily self-custody or, like, is the custody being held by somebody else? Um, now, what is always important and what I've always liked about blockchain is that you have the optionality. Like, hey, KKR, Blackstone, Goldman, you want to use this? Like, you're, you want to use Anchorage, Fireblocks, we need to do, like, an integration. It needs to be regulatory safe and sound, and it's going to feel a lot less like blockchain and DeFi. But maybe also this other guy, retail investor, wants to use his phantom MetaMask wallet, connect to the platform, keep the coins himself, like use it as collateral somewhere else in a DeFi platform. I think that optionality, that is super powerful. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with you there. So as you're looking at like elsewhere in Latin America, you guys have been doing some work on securitization of insured loans. I want to talk a little bit about that sort of as a product expansion and also expanding into other other countries. So how has that process been? How that come about? Yeah, yeah. So so that started with our, our dipping our toes in the Colombian market. So we, we started looking into the Colombian market, very interesting market, big opportunity, similar problems as Brazil, um, like local banking system owns and operates everything. They're making a lot of money, so there is no drive for them to change or to do anything meaningful or to build any technology or be, be smart about literally anything. Um, and we got to know this, uh, this company, Clave, uh, which we're now partnering with in Colombia. And they had a very similar vision as us, but they didn't really have the blockchain tokenization cross-border piece. And when we pitched to them, it felt immediately like a match made in heaven because they were digitizing the data locally and solving a lot of the, the local issues, but they didn't really solve the cross-border fundraising aspect of it. And so we sat around the table, we went to the drawing board, and we, with critics, we we told them, like, look, there, there are two things, like, for, for non-institutional investors that make it very difficult to get into real-world assets. And I think the first thing is like, there is a liquidity issue. Like they're not used to getting their money locked up for one year, two year, three year, four year, five years. They want instant or near to instant liquidity. And secondly, they are not credit experts and you cannot expect them to be. So how can we provide them a better user experience? And then we designed this new kind of product where we said like, hey, let's, try to build a product where we give short-term credit and we have like a fully digital integration so that every month we can allow people to get out of the, the protocol. So 30-day liquidity. And then secondly, let's try to get this credit insured. Move the risk away from like a credit risk to an insurance risk, which is something that people better understand. And so in uh, Munich Reinsurance, we, we found a reinsurance partner. And so we now have the, the credit fully insured. So it acts more like a kind of treasury product on chain 
but in the end, you're still financing uh, farmers in uh, in Colombia. Right. And so what is that? I mean, when you've done all that de-risking, what do those things look like from a return perspective? And how does that line up to what investors are generally expecting in this area? Yeah. So in this kind of area, um, so we're now talking about 9%, 10% annualized on uh, dollars. So that is for a fully insured, forex hedged uh, kind of uh, product. Um, now, there is a possibility to get this product even rated. So like a Fitch or an S&P or a Moody's, they might rate this product, which would bring the, the, the yields down a little bit more, but which would allow us to potentially sell this product to pension funds. Right. Because it becomes a pension fund eligible kind of product. And we believe it's this very hard and painful work that we have to go through with credits to be able to really bring the big boys to the table. And then the conversation doesn't become anymore like, hey, do you want to buy like credits on the blockchain? Sounds really fun and innovative and you can do a nice press release. But it's like, look, we have like a very good credit product here where you will get your data in real time. It's like fully automated. There is no room for manual errors. Cash flows are flowing automatically, which is one of the biggest pains in in, in cross-border credit. Yeah. By the way, it's on the blockchain. Right. But you shouldn't care. Right. So what do you think the, and obviously like no one's going to hold you to numbers here, but like when you're looking at the efficiency gains of being able to use smart contracts and Solana and USDC and all these different like technologies that are really built from blockchain, but the core business is not built on blockchain, but it's using blockchain for these core functions. What's your sort of spitball estimation of efficiency gains that come from doing this as opposed to saying, you know what? We have a great idea. We're a technology forward group of individuals. We're going to just build this off chain as a modern fintech company. Yeah. So today we're um, we're seeing around 100 to 200 basis points in efficiency gains in savings through our system. And we believe by having deeper data integrations, using even more automation tools, um, putting the smart contracts even better to work, getting more... Um, direct adoption, we can almost double that. Very cool. That's quite substantial. Yes, that's quite substantial, definitely. And and then there is like the, the indirect value that you can bring. And I think that is sometimes underestimated is we we meet some of these fintech companies in, in, in Brazil and they're like a Series A company and they have like 30 people. And then like, okay, 30 people, it's okay. It's not an amazing headcount. But like, then it's like, oh, half of them are like in like operations, administration. They're in like not immediately core value adds. And I'm not saying those people don't add value to the business, but like, they, they, they should be able to do better things and they should be able to use these kind of technologies to scale their businesses easier and faster. Yeah, that's a very interesting future kind of for what this stuff looks like. And that sort of efficiency gain is like, I know it doesn't sound like a ton, but when you're talking about $200 million of assets moving through, that's a serious amount of money and savings. Yes, exactly. And and then I think there is the the, the future state as well, right? And again, I think we, we have to go back to the problem. The problem is there is there is $2 trillion that we need to finance in Latin America, and there is only $200 billion available. So we, we need to bring more money into the country. We're not going to be able to bring more money in the country just by like 
screaming from the roofs like, hey, it's like an access premium. It's, it's not a risk premium. Yeah. We have to show the data. And to show the data, it needs to be transparent. It needs to be auditable. And it cannot be like, be able to be tampered with. This is blockchain. This is blockchain. Like if we can build this track record on the blockchain of like how the assets are behaving, how the risk is behaving, how the repayments are being done, this will solve our problem in the long time because then like a big investor will be able to come and look and use at it, uh, look at it and see like, hey, I want to invest in this. This looks actually pretty good. I can run my analytics. I can run my nice AI model on this. And my AI model will say like, hey, like, yeah, let's allocate 5% of our AOM in these kind of credits. Yeah, that's interesting. When you bring blockchain into the stack here, one of the things that like a lot of you hear a lot from the traditional financial world, people who really haven't evaluated blockchain, but one of the pieces that they say is a problem is that the data is transparent. That data for them is the new oil and, you know, yada, 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 proprietary data sets. We, we don't want to be leaking kind of information. How have you thought about that in terms of the long-term defensibility of what you guys are building? That sort of classic example of like, there are many, many early fintech companies that prove a market and then the big boys come in and just say, thank you very much. And how are you guys thinking about sort of that long-term competitiveness? Yeah, definitely. So I think on the on the data piece, I feel this is a bit of like an excuse still for many to like move into it. I think it's a habit of like hurdling all your own data, not sharing it and thinking your data set is way better than the other data sets. I, I remember when I was doing this 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 work, um previously we we built a, a shared KYC system on the on the blockchain and in the beginning all the banks were like oh but my kyc data is way better than your kyc data and it it's all bad it's all bad data quality <laughs> right so like let's sit together let's work for a standard and i think the power will be in the one who is the smartest on how to use that data so i think over time it is an issue that we will be able to overcome and then my Big bet is also that there are much smarter people than myself building these kind of like zero knowledge proof, on-chain, off-chain, Oracle in a decentralized, efficient kind of way manner that's still personal identifiable data. Uh, as an example, we can still keep off-chain or sharded or have like mechanics for that. And I think that will be another technology innovation that we're already seeing and we will see even more at scale. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh so last question before we wrap up today. I want yeah. to talk a little bit about stable coins in Latin America. Yes. It seems like it makes sense. It seems like it's a huge market. Uh, no one's really been able to crack it yet. It seems like everyone is still at the end of the day using USDC or USDT or they're settling to a local fiat currency that is not tokenized at this point. Yeah. Um, is that just a technology maturity? Is that a regulatory issue? Like, where do you see the future of, of stable coins in Latin America? Yeah. So um, I think two things. I think there there is still of, um, of a regulatory issue. It is not easy to bring in foreign currencies in these markets. They're often very protective for that. Um, and the banks have, like, positioned them really well that it's like, hey, if it doesn't pass through us, like, it's not coming into the country. Um, so there are some control mechanisms that are not easy if you're a new startup with a brand new ID um, and you want to give people access to all these stable coins and, and use it. 
like very quickly you you hit a wall. Um, these are things that like new regulations, um, the central bank, the local SECs are all looking to solve because there is a huge need in these markets. There is a huge need in these markets to be able to hold dollars, to be able to hold any kind of stable coin. And the the local regulators are realizing this. And the adoption that is already happening locally in, in, in for example, Brazil, it is, it is insane. I, I think like during my last visit in the in the weekend, I, I went to do I went to go go cycling, and we went to go cycling like literally in the mountains of Brazil, and we did a small pit stop to 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 buy a drink, and you could buy your drink with crypto there, <laughs> like you could use stable coins. Like here in New York, like it's it's often still difficult to use Apple Pay at certain places. Like so, I strongly believe that like the the people will push for innovation. They will push the innovation agenda because they will demand the use of these stable coins, of these crypto coins, be able to invest freely. They they are getting used to products like new bank, full digital banks, full digital service, and they will demand nothing else. And I, I think that is like with blockchain general, right? I think we cannot underestimate I think we're, we're both probably seeing ourselves as still young and we're like, hey, we're innovative and we use all these new tools. But if you look at the generation that is coming after us, they're truly digitally native. Like they will not accept it anymore that if they go work for a financial institution that they have to print something and like run five blocks to register it with somebody who is like faxing them back to them. They will not accept that anymore. They will expect a digital native experience. And I think we're sometimes underestimating like how big that need is and how much innovation that still is going to trigger. Um, and so that's why it's, 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 it's very tacky to say, but like it is still early. We're, we're still building the core infrastructure and primitives here to be able to have that digital experience anywhere beyond the financial services, but at scale. Um, and so that that's what we strongly believe in. Awesome. Well, uh, I love that vision of the future and excited to see what you guys work on over the next year. Awesome. Um, yeah, this was uh, this was super fun. We're super excited about it. Um, we're super proud to to be part of the Solana ecosystem and be uh, building on top of it. So um, I think uh, we have a, a long road, a lot of hard work to go, but it's uh, super exciting. Awesome. Well, Thomas, thanks for joining me today on Validated. Thank you. Appreciate it. Validated is produced by Ray Belli with help from Ross Cohen, Brandon Ector, Amira Valiani, and Ainsley Medford. Engineering by Tyler Morissette.